encourage you to get a Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We are studying through for the Galatians. For those who may be visiting with us, we are working through the book of Galatians on Sunday morning. We've looked at two chapters and we're ready for chapter 3 of the book of Galatians as we continue that study. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad that you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. Galatians chapter 3, I encourage you to turn there because we're going to do a textual study of that chapter. The book of Galatians is about being justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's the heart and the thrust of the book. Though the first two chapters is a defense of his apostleship because those who are saying that we are to go back under the law, be circumcised in order to be saved, they are really attacking the apostleship of the apostle Paul and thus he defends that apostleship. And so we're ready to pick up in chapter 3. We'll go back and review chapters 1 and 2 in a moment. But this gets to the heart and the core of what the book is about. And that is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Chapters 3 and 4. Then we get into what we call the practical section or the exhortation section. So what was chapter 1 about? Chapter 1 was the fact that he is an apostle not of man but of God. He made the claim, verses 1 and 2. He warned about false teachers, verses 6 to 9. And then he provided the evidence for them. And I won't go back through the evidence, but he made the claim of being an independent apostle. That is, independent of the other apostles. And then he worked, as we have been saying, methodically through his argumentation, showing from one point to another point to another to even another. Here is evidence that indeed I am not an apostle of man, but an apostle of after Jesus Christ. God chose me to be an apostle. So what was chapter 2 about? He was not an inferior apostle. He was approved by the apostles at that Jerusalem conference over in Acts chapter 15. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. They endorsed the message he was preaching. Didn't add anything to him, he said. And then he took that same message and reproved the apostle Peter. It withstood the test of public confrontation. And therefore, he therefore is not an inferior apostle. Go to Galatians 3 now. Galatians 3 shifts gears to the middle section of the book of being justified by faith and not by the law. Now the point is not we're justified by faith, believing, versus some system wherein there is a law that we have to abide by. But he's talking about the faith, the gospel, versus the law of Moses. One is justified by faith in Christ and not by the deeds of the law of Moses, as the Judaizing teachers would suggest. A verse that would summarize the chapter would be verse 11, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, and then he quotes from Habakkuk 2 and, 10, 2 and 4, which says, the just shall live by faith. More about how that fits in the context in a moment. Now there are five points to be learned from this chapter. That the Spirit was received by faith and not by the law. Whatever that means, we'll see in a moment. Then verses 6 to 9, he talks about Abraham was justified by faith. Great father Abraham was justified by faith and not the deeds of the law. Actually, the law brings a curse. And the promise, like Genesis 12, was before the law was given. And the law does not make the promise void. And then he adds, here's the purpose of the law. And so he methodically again works through various points showing that indeed we're justified by faith and not by the deeds of the law. This gets to the heart and the core of the book. What is the book all about? Now let's talk about the spirit being received by faith and not by the law. 
verses 1 to 5. Now in this section, he begins by rebuking them for their departure. We saw this in chapter 1, by the way, but I want to pick some verses here, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, where he rebukes them for their departure. He said, oh, foolish Galatians. What a way to start his argument. <laughs> You're foolish. Foolish for what? For listening to the Judaizing teachers and letting them pressure you and pull you away from Christ so that you're so soon removed, as chapter 1 talks about. Oh, foolish Galatians. We'll come back to verse 1. But drop down to verse 3. Are you so foolish, he said, that having begun in the Spirit, that now you continue in the flesh? How could you be so foolish? Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain? In other words, we'll come back to this in a moment. But you obeyed the gospel and you suffered for what you stood for. Did you do that in vain, knowing that that wasn't true? He rebukes them for their departure. Let's go back to verse 1. Who has bewitched you? The idea of being bewitched means to cast a spell. And it seems as though that Paul is making the argument that what you have done makes no sense at all. You heard the gospel, you were taught the gospel, you were given evidence of the gospel, you responded to that gospel, and you stood on that gospel, and now someone comes along and you just quickly follow them. How foolish of you. It's as if there's no other way to explain it than, than someone has cast some evil spell on you. Oh, has someone bewitched you so that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. In other words, Jesus being crucified, the, the gospel, the heart and the core of the gospel of Jesus being your Savior, not the law, not circumcision, but Jesus being your Savior was preached to you. You accepted it. You obeyed it. So tell me who bewitched you? Who cast an evil spell on you to make you act so foolish in this? There is a time and there is a place for severe rebuke and they received one from the Apostle Paul. Now then here is his question. This is the point of verses 1 to 5. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith? Now let's talk about the Spirit in this context. Now notice at verse 2 he said, this, this I only want to learn. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And what is he talking about receiving the Spirit? I don't think he's talking about receiving the miraculous measure of the Spirit. Though he mentions that at verse 5. And we'll talk about the, the sense of that in a moment. But I don't think he's saying that did you receive miraculous measures, the imparting of the Spirit that way? Or, or did you receive some kind of measure of the Spirit? But I think he's talking about being in a fellowship with the Spirit. The Old Testament told us a lot about the Holy Spirit, but not what we learn from the New Testament through the Gospel. We know more about the Holy Spirit. So it's only through the gospel and obedience to the gospel that we come to fully know the Holy Spirit and come into fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So his question here is this. He said, did you receive the Spirit? That is, did you enter into a fellowship with the Holy Spirit through the works of the law? By the way, the Galatians, who were Gentiles, had not even been practicing anything of the law prior to these Judaizing teachers coming. So it wasn't by the law, it wasn't by keeping the law they received the Spirit or entered into fellowship through the Spirit or through the hearing of faith. Now let's pause for a moment and talk about the law versus the hearing of faith. I don't think he's talking about just merely hearing or mere faith, but using that expression hearing of faith 
In contrast to the law, here is the law of Moses, here is the hearing of faith, the gospel. So his question is this, did you enter into a relationship with the Holy Spirit and learn more about the Holy Spirit through the law, which you hadn't even been practicing at all? Or was it through the hearing of the gospel? And the question is obvious, or the answer is obvious, it was through the gospel. So you didn't receive the Spirit through the law, you received it through faith, he said. Now let's go to verse 5, look at verse 5. Uh, or verse 3, he said, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? You see, you obeyed the gospel and you did that through faith and that's how you began your, your, your Christian life and now are you going to give that up and continue and end it through the flesh, through, through going back to the law and being circumcised and keeping the law? Is that how you're going to have it? Oh, foolish Galatians, he said. And then when you obeyed the gospel, verse 4, you suffered because of your allegiance to Christ. Was that in vain? Was that worth nothing? Why did you suffer? Now verse 5. Now verse 5. Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, did he do it by the work of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's he talking about? In other words, when the message was preached to you, the evidence of the validity of that message was done through miracles. Remember he's preaching to the Galatians or writing to the Galatians. Paul in his first missionary journey had been to those region in southern Galatia. In Antioch, Presidia, and Iconium, and Derbe. He goes and preaches there and he worked miracles to confirm the message that was preached. So now with that in mind, the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. In other words, when I came to you preaching to you, was I bringing the law to you and then worked miracles to confirm the law? Or was I preaching the gospel of Christ and confirmed it by miracles? Well, it was the gospel of Christ. So you received the Spirit and entered into a relationship with the Spirit, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, through the gospel. There's your evidence that you're justified by faith and not by the deeds of the law. But he's not through. Let's now begin at verse 6. In verse 6, he talks about Abraham was justified by faith. Now let's pause and raise a question. Why is Abraham so important? Why not mention some other great Bible? Why not mention Daniel, for example? Or why not mention Isaiah or Amos? Why not mention some great Bible character? Why mention Abraham? Abraham was a powerful point to the Jews because Abraham was their father. And in the sense that they thought that they being Abraham's seed and everyone needed to be Abraham's seed. For example, Matthew 3 and in verse 9, Jesus said, do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Well, Abraham was their father. He's not saying don't say Abraham is your father. What he's saying is don't make that as the condition of your being saved. We're saved and we're okay with God because we are descendants of Abraham. That's what they thought. He said, no, 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 that's not the way it is because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. John 8, 32 perhaps is a classic case where in verse 32, Jesus said, you should know the truth and the truth will make you free. And their response was, Abraham, we're Abraham's seed or we're Abraham's descendants and never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you need to be made free? We don't need freedom at all because we're Jews. You see, we're descendants of Abraham. Abraham was very important to the Jews. So Judaizing teachers are coming in telling them you need to be like Abraham. He said, all right, let's talk about Abraham. What does he say about Abraham? Well, notice in saying, talking about Abraham, he said Abraham believed God and he was counted or considered as righteous. Look at verse 6. He said, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
That's a quotation from Genesis 15 and in verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted, or your translation may use the word imputed. It's the same word translated imputed in Romans 4. It's an accounting term. It means to put down into an account. Just like if you have a debt and it's written down in the account, again an accounting term, it's written down that you have this debt. It's an accounting concept. And so sin can be imputed to one's account, or righteousness could be imputed to someone's account. This is not the, the righteousness of Christ being imputed vicariously to you. Nothing in the context about that. But this is your righteousness or Abraham's righteousness as per his case in verse 6. So here's the point. Abraham believed God and God wrote down in his account, Abraham is a righteous man. That's what's written in the ledger book beside the name of Abraham. So you look at Abraham, is he righteous or is he wicked? He's righteous. God wrote it down. It's an accounting term. All right. Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. Then he said, those that believe are children of Abraham. You want to be a child of Abraham? Every Jew says, I'm a child, I'm a descendant of Abraham. We be Abraham's seed. Then you're going to have to have faith. Look at verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith, because that's what Abraham did, Genesis 15, 6, are the sons of Abraham. It's not those that are circumcised. It's not those that go back to the law. It's those who have faith, because Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. Now then, verse 8. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the, the nations by faith preached before the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. Now what on earth is verse 8 about? Well, let's start and talk about the scriptures. The scriptures foreseeing. He personifies scriptures as if it's a person. Scriptures literally cannot foresee. Scriptures do not have eyes. But he takes the scriptures and personifies them as if it's a person and this, the scriptures could foresee something. That is an affirmation of inspiration of the scriptures. Because the scriptures foreseeing something was coming. What the scriptures foresee? The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the heathen or the nations by faith. That is, God would justify not only the Jew but also the Gentile by faith. How do we know the scriptures foresaw that? Because he said, in you, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not some, not the Jews, but all nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was from Genesis 12. That was where the promise was made. In you, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. So you see, the scriptures had said, it's those that believe that are the children of Abraham. Now let's go to verse 9. Let's get verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Not because they're circumcised, not because they go back to the law, but because of their faith. Now, let's see what he just said about this. Abraham is an example. He believed God and was counted as righteous. But his point is, those that believe, not those being circumcised or going to the law, are those that are children of Abraham. Now, notice the time frame. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. That was before Abraham was circumcised. So he's being counted righteous had nothing to do with his circumcision. It had to do with his faith. Abraham believed and he was considered righteous and that was before the law was given to Moses, Exodus 20. So the law had nothing to do with him being righteous and counted as righteous. You want to be like your father Abraham? You want to be a Jew? 
You want to be like your father Abraham? Abraham was considered and counted as righteous because of his faith, not because of circumcision and not because of the law. They hadn't come. There's evidence you're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now then, let's begin at verse 10. See how he's working again as we saw in chapter 1 methodically through his points? Justification is by faith and not by the law. How did you receive the Spirit? Well, it was through obedience to the gospel, not by the law. Okay. What about Abraham? Well, he was justified by faith before the law and before circumcision. All right. Well, let's talk about the law now, beginning at verse 10. The law brings a curse. Let's see what that is. The law brings a curse. For as many as under the, uh, are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now let's start and talk about what the curse is. Let's talk about what the curse is. The curse has to do with the divine judgment against sin. You say, how do you know? Well, let's look at verse 10. For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse, for, here's evidence, it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in things that are written in the book of the law. You see, what the law had said, if you don't keep all the law, you're under the penalty. So if you're going to be justified by the law, you're going to have to keep the law perfectly. Now go back and read verse 10. This is a quotation, verse 10, from Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in the things that are written in the law to do them. If you don't keep the law perfectly, as Jesus did, no one else did, you're under the curse of the law. So you, you, you get the point now, what he's saying to, the, to those who are, who are trying to get you to go back under the law of Moses. I want, let's go back under the law. Let's live under the law. All right, you want to live under the law? There was a curse under the law. What was the curse? If you didn't keep the, all, the law, you were condemned. If you didn't keep the whole law, you were condemned. There was no means of being justified by the law. You couldn't be justified unless you kept it perfectly. No one did. Romans 3. Now he's not through it. Let's drop down to verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. You say, well, what is that? That's Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 said the man that does them, that is he keeps all the law, keeps it perfectly, he'll have life because he kept the law perfectly. That's part of the curse of the law. The curse of the law is if you don't keep the law, you're under the condemnation of the law. So the Judaizing teacher is saying, let's go back to the law of Moses. All right, you're going to have to keep it perfectly. And if you don't, then you're under the curse of the law. Now then, he's not through. We're saved by faith, though. Verse 11. Now, this is interesting. I cited this as a key verse summarizing the chapter. But that none is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. This is obvious. Well, Paul, why do you say it's obvious? Well, one thing. Verse 10, verse 12, the verse before and the verse after, if you didn't keep the law perfectly, you wouldn't be saved. So that's obvious. But here's something else that makes it obvious. For the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. You say, what does that have to do? That was a quotation from the Old Testament. The very law that you're saying we ought to go back under, that very Old Testament you say we ought to go back under, had said one would be justified by faith. So evidence, that's evident we're justified by faith. You say, how do you know? Look at the curse of the law, number one, and look at what the law had said, Habakkuk 2, 4. Now let's footnote. 
Notice the word live is in contrast to the curse. I don't think he's saying righteous people live a life by faith. That's true, but that's not what he's arguing. He's talking about how you become justified. The just shall live by faith. I don't think he's saying, oh, by the way, if you're a righteous person, you live a life of faith. That's true. That's not, what he, that's not his argument. We'll see more about that in chapters 5 and 6. Talk about how you become justified. You don't become justified by the law because you're under the curse of the law. But by faith, you live. Curse and living are opposite one from the other. They're opposite one from the other. And here is an Old Testament quotation to prove the very point to be made. Now then, look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Through the gospel, Christ does for us what the law could never do. You see, when we didn't keep the law, if you were a Jew and you were under the law of Moses, you didn't keep the law, you were under the condemnation. Christ did for us what the law never could do. It could never pronounce forgiveness. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, not only delivered us from the law, but from the sin that the law pronounced upon us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the curse that was mentioned in verse 10, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is, he paid the penalty for us. That the blessing of Abraham, that promise of Genesis 12, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He did for us what the law could not do. So let's talk about the law. He's trying to argue we're justified by faith and not by the law. The law mispronounces a curse. Christ redeemed us from that law. He's the curse for us and he redeemed us that we might have the blessings of Abraham. Now let's go to 15 to 18. The promise was before the law. He said, I speak in the manner of men. Verse 15, though it is only a man's covenant, if, a, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. And he said, let's illustrate. Let, let's just talk about this, this covenant of a man. And he's making the point, a covenant that's confirmed cannot be annulled. A covenant is agreement between two people. Not the same as a promise, but here's a covenant made between two people. That this covenant is something that cannot be annulled. So let's go back and read verse, verse 15. I speak in the manner of men. Like when there's a man's covenant, if it's confirmed, no one adds to or no one can annul or add to it. There's no codicil to the will. Once it's been confirmed, no one else can say, I want to add another provision into, into that, that covenant. No, no, he can't do that. All we're trying to see is a covenant confirmed cannot be annulled. A promise cannot be annulled. Now, the promise came through Christ at verse 16. Now, to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. The promise of Genesis 12, the whole promise and the whole provision of the Old Testament was a provision for the coming of the Messiah, is his point. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He did not say to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. In other words, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 wasn't to all the descendants of Abraham that in you all nations of the earth would be blessed. It was only through Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. To one, to seeds, but to one that ultimately pointed to the Christ. Now notice at verse 17 he said, And I say that the law, now starting at verse 17 and 18, the law came later and cannot annul the promise. So there was a promise, get the point, there was a promise in Genesis 12. 
Then a law came along, and he said, it doesn't, it doesn't change a thing. And I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant, or that is the promise, that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should be, make the promise of no effect. Now let's get verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What's his point? His point is God made a promise, and this was a promise to save man through the Christ, through the coming of the Messiah, and the law came later and cannot annul the promise. Now this looks very similar to what we saw a moment ago, but we've changed Genesis 15 to Genesis 12 because he shifted gears. In Genesis chapter 12, there was a promise to Abraham that the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. That was made before circumcision was binding. That was made before the law was given. So the law which came 430 years later does not annul this promise. There was a promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And he said a law coming later doesn't set aside, doesn't annul, doesn't add anything to, doesn't change that promise at all. The law came later is his point. And so therefore we're not justified by the deeds of the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. Now let's talk about the purpose of the law. Now in this he talks about the purpose of the law. What then, if we're not under the law and we're not saved by the law, what purpose does it have? That might be an objection one would raise. What purpose does this law have? Beginning at verse 19. Well, let's see what the purpose is. First of all, it's to reveal and to deter man's sin. So let's start at verse 19. He says in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Now we'll come back to the mediator in verse 20, which is a difficult verse here in just a second. But what's his point in verse 19? The law was added because of transgression. What does that mean? The law was brought about to reveal man's sin and to deter sin. I'll give you an example of deterring sin. In Romans 7, Paul said, I had not known covetousness except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. In other words, I wouldn't have known it was wrong. I wouldn't have known I shouldn't do that except the law had said I shouldn't do that. That's how I knew I shouldn't do that. So it deterred sin. But it also revealed man's sin. How does he know he's a sinner? He knows he's a sinner because he looks to the law. So that was the purpose of the law. It was to reveal man's need for a savior and to deter sin. That was the point of it, he said. Now let's get verse 20. He said this came through the hands of a mediator. That is, the law came through the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate only for one, but God is one. Well, what on earth does that mean? He just talked about the law, and he said it was given by the hands of a mediator. But a mediator doesn't just deal with one, it deals with two parties. But God is one. So what's he talking about? The focus of the passage is that the law requires a mediator, but a promise doesn't require a mediator. And that the promise came from God alone and he's the source and the guarantee and the law cannot set that aside. That's his point. 
that the law came to reveal man's sin. It didn't set apart the law. It didn't annul the law. It didn't reveal, it didn't repeal the law at all. I mean the promise. But what it does, it simply reveals that man has a need for this promise. That's all the law did. It shows that man has a need. It revealed man's purpose. Now let's back up and get verse 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? Is the law set against them? No, no, no. It's not against the laws. For if there had been a law given that could have truly given life, righteousness would have been given by the law. If the law could have produced life, there wouldn't be a need for anything else. It didn't do that. It just revealed sin. That's all it did. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin. That's what the, the law did. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what did the law do? Did it, did it set aside the promise? Not at all. Its purpose was just to reveal that there was a need for this promise. Now then let's go to verse 23 to 22. The purpose of the law was not only to reveal the, the man's sin, but to bring men unto Christ. It was to point men to Christ. Now notice at verse 23. Before faith came, the faith, the re revelation of God, the complete revelation of the gospel, we were kept under the guard of the law. Kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. The law was our tutor. Your translation may say schoolmaster. To bring us unto Christ. What was a tutor or a schoolmaster? It was a servant who oversaw the children for their master. He was a disciplinarian, or he or she may have been a disciplinarian. And so they cared for the children. The law was our caregiver. The law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster. To bring us unto Christ. In other words, it was pointing men to Christ. Let me give you a parallel verse to that. Romans chapter 10 and in verse 4. Romans 10 and verse 4 says essentially the same thing. For the end, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I'm not talking about Christ bringing the end of the law of Moses, but the aim, the telos of the law was Christ. It's pointing men to Christ. It was to bring men to Christ. Now look at verse 25. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. You want to talk about a powerful passage that shows we don't live under the law? The law was our tutor to bring us unto Christ. That was its purpose, to point men to Christ. After that Christ has come, after that faith has come, we're not under that tutor anymore. It was temporary. It's gone. So what was its purpose? To reveal sin and to bring men and point men to Christ. And that it did. Now he said all now are one in Christ. The law was a divider. Separates you from Gentiles. But he said, you are all sons of God, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So whether you're Jew or a Gentile, and you're in one of these churches of Galatia, and you were baptized, you're in Christ. You're a Jew, you're in Christ. You're a Gentile, you're in Christ. There is neither Greek nor Jew, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's he saying? He's saying it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you're slave or free, who you are. But if you've been baptized into Christ, you're one in Christ and you're Abraham's seed. You might be a Gentile. You weren't circumcised, but you're Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise because that's fulfilled in Christ. He is the seed. Now, I want us to back up to verse 26. You might mark in your Bible. You are for you have been might circle those words or underline. You are something, verse 26, for, gar, the reason to follow, you have been. Here's a powerful passage. I've used this in public discussion 
with denominational preachers showing that baptism is essential. The text says you are something for you have been. You are what? You are children of God for. Here's the reason I say you're the children of God. You have been baptized. Is baptism essential? He said you are children of God for you've been baptized. Well, the opposite would also be true. You are not something, for you have not been something. You are not children of God, for you have not been baptized. Would that not stand to reason? He said, every one of you that I'm writing to who have been baptized are children of God. If you're children of God, then you're heirs, and you're the seed of Abraham. And so you are blessed. You, you receive the blessing of Genesis 12. Not through the law. Not through circumcision, but through faith in Christ. Now let's review what we've seen and then we'll list some practical things we've learned. What, what, what have we seen in Galatians 3? He gets to the heart and the core of what the book is about. We're justified through Christ and through faith in Christ and not by the deeds of the law. Why, why do you say that, Paul? Let me ask you, you your relationship you received by, uh, with the Holy Spirit, did you receive that through keeping the law or was it through obedience to the gospel? Notice through the obedience to the gospel. Well, let's talk about your father Abraham. He was justified by faith. That was before circumcision, wasn't it? Yeah. That was before the law, wasn't it? Yeah, well then, faith is how one is justified and becomes a child of Abraham. Well, then he says, let's talk about what the law does. It brings a curse. It doesn't pronounce life. It pronounces a curse. Unless you keep the law. You want to keep the law? You're going to have to keep it perfectly. You see, the promise that was made in Genesis 12 was before the law was ever given, before circumcision was given. It has nothing to do with the promise. So then what purpose is the law? It's to reveal sin and to bring men to Christ. And now that men are brought to Christ, we're children of God and we're all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn from Galatians 3? We take home with us. Go back to verse 1. There is no reason why one should be led away. When some false teacher comes along and begins to, to sway someone so that they're drifting away from the truth and they're, they're clouded and they're, they're confused... There is no defense for that. Because his rebuke to the Galatians, he said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who cast an evil spell on you? You're foolish. That you're so soon removed. There's no reason why one should be led away. Faith is used to stand for obedience. It's in this context here. I don't think he's talking about faith, faith only. He doesn't mention repentance, but it stands for obedience. Did, did you become children of God by faith? Is he saying faith alone or does, is there something else that goes along with that? Well, verse 26 and 27 show that there's more to it than just believing in the Lord. Faith stands for obedience. Here's something else I learned. The essentiality of baptism as we just illustrated. I learned that we're no longer under the law. Whether I understand what a tutor or a schoolmaster is, I know the law was our schoolmaster and we're no longer under the schoolmaster. We're not longer under the law. I know that much. And I learned that we're all equal in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free or male or female. You say, I feel inferior. You're equal in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free. You're educated, uneducated, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. What not? It doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ, verse 28. And I learned a lesson about consistency. The arguments of those who are going back into the law are very inconsistent. Not only verse 10, but several other verses deal with that as well. Galatians chapter 3. Now chapter 4 next time. We'll deal with freedom comes through Christ and not through the law. And we'll see that in chapter 4. And we'll look at an allegory mentioned in the latter part of the chapter. Galatians 4 next time.
There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism, that it could be said of you, you are children of God, for you have been baptized into Christ. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?